This episode is sponsored by our friends at Dukan. Launch your online store in 30 seconds. No coding or design skills required. Whether you are a small business trying to go online, a teacher looking to set up digital presence, or you just want to sell a goat, Dukan is your one-stop solution. At the start of the pandemic, when small businesses were struggling, Dukan helped over a million merchants move from offline to online. Founder of Dukan is also a billion moonshots alumni. He shared his story of making $25,000 per month in college to now building a $100 million startup. So start your 14-day free trial now at mydukan.io. So Jeremy, you were a Twitch streamer even before it was a thing and now you have bootstrapped your SEO agency from 0 to 1 million dollars in ARR. Let's talk about all the good stuff but before that, what's your Twitch streaming story? Yeah, so I I actually was doing a lot of this stuff before Twitch was a thing. So back when it was called Justin TV. Um mm. so for the founder Justin Khan, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, but uh it was way back in high school. I was just I was always into video games like and I was always just beating my friends. So I was like kind of naturally good at video games as a whole. Um and kind of just found, you know, people were recording in in much smaller amounts than they do now. Um this stuff is super normalized now, but kind of wasn't back then. Uh there was just a few people on YouTube at the time that were like recording their gameplay, recording them playing video games, sharing it online, getting some views, like building communities, stuff like that. Um so I just said, you know, this looks pretty cool. Like I'm playing these video games anyways because I'm like, you know, a young addicted teenager to video games. I might as well just record my screen, put some stuff on YouTube, see what happens. So I ended up recording like maybe four or five videos and just throwing them up on YouTube, forgetting about it for maybe a year and then I came back and realized like, wow, these these videos actually have, you know, tens, hundreds of thousands of views on these. I was like, okay, maybe there's something here like maybe I can actually start recording these doing this as like a job because you know who doesn't want to play video games for a living when you're kind of a younger kid um and so I got in contact with a company called Machinima at the time uh they were mm-hmm. like one of the top 10 most subscribed youtube videos at the time millions of subscribers before like having a couple million was you know a normalized thing for for big creators um and so I just reached out to them and just said hey like I'm filming some of these videos check them out let me know what you think like maybe I can create some videos for you um and ended up getting linked up with them as like uh I can't remember what they called it like a sponsor creator or something at that point um so I was getting paid you know a couple thousand bucks a month through monetization uh, a few different ways you know directly from them getting paid in ads to to post some gameplay videos on their channel um so that was kind of where I got my start I never did anything on like live streaming or anything like that so it was mostly the YouTube front um and that was like just at the start when uh, like I said Justin TV was kind of getting its thing going uh before it became Twitch and turned into the the giant business that it is today. Right. That's cool. I actually checked out their YouTube channel Machinima. They have 12 million subscribers but there are no videos over there. Do you know what's yeah. happening with them? Yeah, so I, it's probably been maybe 4 or 5 years since they shut down. They uh I'm not sure exactly what happened but they changed ownership a few times. I think they got acquired maybe once. um and i think they ended up shutting down at some point so unfortunately they did delete all of the videos um and i know there was a big uproar in the community because they didn't let any of the creators know that they were deleting stuff and so all that kind of lost footage and videos are gone uh which is kind of unfortunate cuz like everything that i created was on their channel and so there's nothing uh for me to bring up but yeah it was a interesting time for sure definitely that's hours of work even though it's game yeah. but it's work why did you decide to get into seo space Yeah, you know, I kind of just fell into it really. Um I I studied a bit of marketing in college. So I was always interested in like things just around marketing in general, like branding, advertising, organic search. I learned, you know, a pretty good amount of stuff from college courses actually, contrary to like, you know, what you'll see online about the the typical uh talk around college these days. I think some of the courses I took were actually, you know, primed me to have some interest in the space. Um but I really just fell into uh working at a content marketing agency uh where at first they were doing stuff for more localized businesses. So it was kind of smaller scale stuff. 
kind of like, you know, really boring businesses, but then we transitioned that agency into more of a SaaS focus. So working with a lot of cool startups, uh, companies that were raising a lot of funding and, and could do really cool ventures. Um, so I just really fell into it at, from an agency's perspective. And, and, you know, it was never my intention to like do SEO as a career by any means. Um, just kind of got into it and, and found it really interesting. And from there, uh, worked with a lot of cool clients over the years and then uh, started Usurp in, in 2019 with my business partner, who was actually my former boss at the time um, at the previous agency. Um, so we kind of just, you know, connected really well from there and uh, saw that there was a market opportunity for stuff that was missing and uh, what we could offer there. And so that's kind of how we started the inception of uh, Usurp. Definitely. We actually had previously had someone who also, first of all, built his SEO agency, then sort of built a self-serve product, and then he moved on to do different things. But I'm curious, you mentioned that if agency done right is an incredible business model. So what's your thought process over here? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the main issue that you'll see with like, you know, typically in entrepreneurial circles is like, you know, agency tends to be like something that people recommend it as a first step. Um, usually a good option to be a first step and there's nothing wrong with that in the sense that, uh, you know, you can bootstrap an agency, get it off the ground by just being very skilled at something. Um, but I think people really limit themselves in their mind of, of what you can actually accomplish with an agency. Like most people will say, my goal is to get to 20K a month, 30K a month with my agency. Um, but in reality, down the track, that's like, you know, one client per month, um, at least at the scale of clients that we're working with and where you should want to trend with an agency. Um, and so for us, you know, at the moment, we're doing, I think, around 300K in monthly recurring um, with our team. And, and so the the possibilities with an agency are really are really large. You just have to be very intentional with a, with how you're going about growing it and what your actual goal is there. Um, if your goal is to just create a nice, you know, cash flowing small agency, maybe it's you, two, three other people, um, and you just want to take that to 30, 40, 50K a month and kind of just cruise on that. Um, and you have plans to do other things beyond that. And you're just using that cash flow to invest in something else totally fine, but there are massive opportunities to scale agencies much larger, work with much larger clients, potential acquisitions down the line. Um, so I think agencies kind of get a bad rap overall as like, this is an entry level point, like, you know, you're trading your time for money, things like that. And I think that's true in the early days of like, uh, you know, if you're building an agency from scratch, um, yeah, you're obviously going to be trading your time for money in terms of you're going to be doing the actual work, the deliverables, but at a certain point, uh, like with any business, your goal is to transition out of the day to day. Uh, even if you're a developer, right, and you're building an app, like your goal is probably not to be a developer. Uh, you know, once mm. you hit 100 million in, in revenue, like your goal is not to just be working on the front end every single day and, and writing lines of code. It's to be growing the business, growing the team, setting the vision, things like that. And I think we kind of limit ourselves sometimes with typical agency beliefs. So I think there's a lot of room for growth there if you just treat your agency as, as really any other business model, right? If your goal in the beginning is to really scale that heavily, uh, it just takes a little bit of a different approach than. Uh, I think most people tend to take with an agency, which is just like an extension of a freelancer or like kind of that next step before you jump into SaaS or anything like that. Right. It seems like you did a bunch of things, right? So number one, you built a lot of expertise in SEO, then dived into building an agency. You only hired, I believe by the end of first year, you only had three to five employees and then you grew to, you grew to 80,000 in MRR. What were you doing right over here uh, to grow uh, to 80,000 MRR by the end of first year? Yeah, so we had, I think, when we hit that 80K MRR mark, I think it was maybe five people, including myself, um, in the company. Um, and, you know, we did a lot of things right. We, we took it really slow in the early days, and I think that's really key for a lot of agency growth is, is you can break a lot of things by just moving too fast, um, especially in the early stages when you might not even know what your processes look like. So, for example, if you have three, four, or five clients in the early days, the processes that you are using are not going to be the same ones as if you have 20, 50, 100 clients. Uh, things just don't scale in, in a linear fashion that way. Um, so taking it very slow, 
and really just you know fine-tuning everything that you're doing so that you can really deliver high quality value to a given client you can deliver you know exceeding expectations of service so that you are getting a lot of referrals in the early days you're building up that reputation in the space as someone that can deliver i think a lot of agencies try to scale too quickly in the early stages uh you really want to nail down you know what is your offer and that's going to change over time right like when we started we were probably charging people i don't know 1500 2k a month at max now our, our average client spend is, is anywhere from you know 15 to 30k a month is pretty average for us um, and you're not going to get there just at the start you can't just you know fire up a landing page and say hey pay me 30k a month like no one's going to trust you to do that and so you do need to build up over time really slowly and that's that's the typical approach that we took we just found that you know results start to compound really quickly once you hit that one one and a half two year mark of okay these people have built a brand in this space they've shown that they can deliver results and that's really where you start to see a lot of that more kind of exponential growth Right. And I'm curious. So you market, you serve as a digital PR and SEO agency. So what is the role of digital PR? Why are you not just an SEO agency? Just curious about that. Yeah, absolutely. So we see SEO as falling into kind of like three main buckets. So number one is typically going to be technical SEO. So how's the foundation of your site? Is the architecture good? Is it fast? Is it easy to use? Things like this for, for both search engines and a user perspective. Overall, you want the usability to be high and the structure to be good. Uh, secondly is going to be content on your own site. So content marketing as a whole, but a lot of stuff that's going to be keyword driven. So looking to capture kind of existing demand in your space. So for example, maybe you're a software company, uh, that's built around like a CRM. So you'd want to obviously target content that's, uh, to your target market, looking for CRMs or anything to do with, you know, managing customers, relationships, et cetera. Um, and then the third bucket is a lot of off page SEO, um, which is hugely important in, in how well your content is going to rank on site. Um, and so that's where a lot of the link building digital PR comes into play, where uh, essentially, you know, this is all meant to build your brand. So what Google's really looking for when they're ranking content is A, you know, is your site good? Is it is it easy to use? Is it fast? B, is the content really matching what the searcher is looking for? And then C, the off page, like, is your brand trustworthy? Is this content being shared a lot, a, a lot around online? Like, are people linking back to it? Uh, does your brand have just a good standing overall? Or are you like someone that's coming into a finance space and like, giving financial advice when you're not qualified. So it's it's kind of like the off-page side of things, the digital PR is really about brand building as a whole and really about building your expertise and your trustworthiness in that space. And that's where we really see uh, major impacts on SEO as a whole. That makes sense. What do you think are the fundamental things that an SEO agency does right in order to help these companies? Yeah, absolutely. I think really understanding, uh, obviously, number one, like what are the main KPIs and goals of a company that you're working with? Um, and that really will depend on the types of companies you're working with the stage they are and maybe their their growth or their funding is really going to make a difference even timing in the market makes a difference like especially right now uh where we're having you know typical like recession talks uh companies are mm -hmm. shifting a little bit from at least in our software space they're shifting from kind of hyper growth growth at all costs where uh you know they're okay with burning tons of money to to create massive amounts of content at scale generate a ton of traffic whereas maybe that might be shifting a little bit right now towards how can we create more content that's really driven around buying decisions rather than just let's get our brand out there let's you know, tap every single network we can. So I think there's a lot of things uh, that you can kind of look into there, but will depend really on the space that you're working with. And it's one of the reasons too why we've chosen kind of the SaaS space as a whole is just, uh, you know, the the value that we can create there is, is exponentially higher than we could do for maybe a local like brick and mortar store who whose margins are already really tight. They don't have too much to invest in marketing. You know, if they're just going to spend one to 2K a month, um, you know, we can't really give them any impact that's worthwhile. And so we typically, you know, turn those folks away and say, hey, you probably don't even need SEO at this point, right? That, that marketing spend is probably better used elsewhere uh, compared to mm -hmm. a software company where, you know, okay, their, their market has a ton of demand in organic search, you know, getting a couple big enterprise sales from content marketing, like that's going to pay for a year's worth of spend. And so we're really able to tie that much more directly back to ROI. 
That's very interesting. And also interesting that you mentioned about recession. You mentioned about the recession talks that are going on. You definitely have a lot of insider information, not information, but insights on how brands are adapting. So what are your thoughts on this? How are brands changing their marketing spend? What should people be careful about? Or what should people consider right now? Yeah, it's a really good question. So we're kind of seeing things on both ends of the spectrum where we're seeing clients that, like I mentioned, they're maybe going for more of an ROI-driven focus versus, you know, maybe before they had raised a ton of money, their goal was to burn a ton of cash and get really, you know, be a product market leader in that sense um, versus, you know, maybe now they're looking to invest more in lots of few given niches that are high converting for us versus let's go industry-wide. So they're maybe, you know, going a little narrow on their focus and saying, okay, this vertical or this use case is a better fit for us, or maybe it converts at a higher rate. Hmm. So putting more money there versus elsewhere. Um, but we're also seeing the opposite too, where we're seeing companies that have raised a ton of money, they still have this focus where, okay, now our competitors are, are lessening spend on this. They're starting to cut their marketing services. Let's double, triple down on what we're existing, uh, what we're currently doing and see if we can you know, expand into the market, take up more market share, really gain more ground. And I think it's a really interesting time where you're seeing like, you know, you, you really see folks that uh, if they're investing in SEO or any sort of content marketing for that matter as a whole, uh, cut their budgets, that really gives you as a, as a company an opportunity to take up ground where, okay, maybe you were far behind them in terms of SEO traction, right? Now, if they're cutting their budgets and you have another year, two years of runway um, that you're investing into this, like the amount of ground you can gain there is pretty significant in terms of, you know, the market share overall. So I think we're kind of seeing uh, a little bit on both ends and it, it just depends on kind of the company stage, but definitely an interesting time. Yeah, definitely. Because even on Twitter right now, we are seeing some VC firms. There are one side, on one side, there are VC firms who have a lot of resources, a lot of capital. They are doubling down during this time on Web3. And then there are other VCs who are like, hey, let's focus on what we are good at and, not, and cut all the fat. So very interesting. Uh, I'm also really curious about compensation plans. So starting an agency, literally right now, every single friend of mine who is, let's say, just graduated from university, spending time on Twitter, they're like, hey, if you want to make money, let's start an agency. And now they're trying to figure out how do you create that compensation structure? How do you, how much do you charge your clients? So what was the process for you where you, let's say, first trying try to figure out that, okay, this is the value we provide. So this should be the compensation we should be asking for to now where you're charging $30,000 per month. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely going to shift over time uh, as you're starting early on, especially if you're you know just starting an agency and you're looking to figure out, okay, what do I charge for this service? Um, you can quickly fall into the trap of like commoditizing yourself or your offer. Um, and I think that's a dangerous level uh, of pricing because, I mean, you, you start to run into issues of where folks are just going to come to you and say, oh, you know, 500 a month for this article, like I can find a freelancer to do it for 50 a month. Um, and so you run into mm -hmm. those issues there of where you're really treating your service as a commodity versus uh, something that's going to drive business impact, business value. So I think really understanding uh, how your service actually impacts the businesses that you're working with is really key. And a lot of that comes down to what niche you focus on um, and not riding that line of like, I just do content for every business, but I do content for whatever startups that have raised a series A of XYZ amount. They have XYZ employees. Their you know target revenue goal is this or like an average client value for them is XYZ. So really understanding those is super key. Um, to give a really concrete example, we worked with a company a long time ago, kind of in our earlier stages, um, where we were charging them, I think at that point, maybe three to 5,000 or something around that mark. Um, and in the end, our business impact value there was around 35,000 per week in revenue that they were gaining from the, uh, the deliverables that we were giving them. Um, so you can see a very large mismatch in terms of what we thought the actual value was versus what they were getting. Um, and I think it's really hard to know that in the early stages. And like, you're gonna have mm. to go through those phases of like, Here's, here's what my pricing is. It's probably going to be commoditized early on. It's going to be cheaper, uh, but you're going to land really good clients that way as well. And you're going to build up that referral network over time. Um, so I think, you know, it's, you know, don't jump into it and think that you're going to be able to charge really high, really quickly. You need to kind of prove some of your traction in the market there and then really understand 
just going to come from conversations with your clients of, hey, what is, you know, what value are we actually driving for you? Why are you staying on with us? Like, how is this article performing? If maybe you're a content service, maybe you're doing like social media marketing for them, like just asking them point blank and just saying, hey, like, you know, we did these 20 social posts for you last month. Like, what is the impact value that you've seen there? Um, we'll give you a really good idea of like what to charge in the future. Um, and then you can also just tie it back directly to uh, like, what are your sales closing rates really? Um, if you're seeing, you know, you're closing like 90% of people that are coming in the door, you're probably charging way too little. Um, and it's a good sign that you should just keep increasing your prices. Um, we, we realistically do that over time too, where if we see a large influx of every single time we go to pitch, someone says, yes, let's get started. It's probably a clear indication that our pricing is too low for the market um, that we're right. in the value that we're providing. Um, so those are all kind of like, little indicators that you can pick up on over time. Definitely. So in negotiation, there's a rule that whoever speaks first loses. I believe that's how it goes. So how does the pricing, custom pricing works for you? Like how do you, when you have to communicate with clients, they have a particular job for you and you are like, all right, we can do this for you. And when they ask you how much you're going to charge, what is your communication at that point of time? Yeah, absolutely. We try to lead with this kind of in the early stages of a sales call, um, just to make sure that we're on the right foot. So depending on the the kind of inquiry that we get, if it's really cold and they're coming in, maybe they just you know clicked on our site and filled out a form, but haven't engaged with us before, uh, we'll typically send them some resources and materials before our call. Um, it'll be kind of like a services overview of like, hey, here's what we do. Here's what, who we do it for. Here's kind of the typical impacts that we see or where the, the biggest value we can drive is. And then we'll give them an idea too of like, you know, here's what our average client spends. Uh, but here's our monthly minimums. You know, if this is not within your wheelhouse, no worries. Like, feel free to just cancel the call. Uh, we want to disqualify mm -hmm. people as soon as possible so that we're not taking on sales calls just to have sales calls. We're taking on ones that, you know, we have a high likelihood of achieving some good success with. Because um, we just found early on that, you know, if we were getting on a call, we were spending 20, 30 minutes going through something. And then at the end, like you said, the discussion of pricing comes into play. And like, you know, someone would just say, oh, that's way too expensive. Like, we're not a good fit. You just end up wasting a ton of time overall on, on both ends. Um, another good way we go about it is, is uh, if you're taking a sales call, is to just be really upfront and just say at the early stages, even before you dive in, just say, hey, like, it's great to meet you. You know, on today's call, I'm going to run you through like some areas we see for improvement, what we can do with you, how we can scale from here. Um, our monthly, you know, minimum started around this. Like, does this sound realistic to you? You know, if not, no worries. We can like still dive in and give you some free strategy advice that you can take with you. Um, so in the end, you know, if it's not a good fit, if the budget is not there, uh, not a problem. You know, we're happy to give 20, 30 minutes of our time and kind of explain that because you're, you know, you're building a real relationship with them down the line. They might have more budget. Maybe they know people that have more mm -hmm. budget. So not being rude and just saying, oh, like your budget isn't a fit. Like uh, we're going to cancel the call from here. Just saying, you know, here's some opportunities we saw. Uh, you know, if you have the budget, cool, we can execute on some of these. If not, you know, feel free to implement those. And, you know, once you get to that level and you need some extra help, like we're always here and ready to go. Yeah, but this is this is great. Like being upfront that, okay, this is what the average client spends. This is the minimum. And if that doesn't work in your range, feel free to cancel the call. Love that. Being very direct, getting that clear no and moving on. Uh, so that's, that's really good when you are talking to customers who don't have a budget. What mm -hmm. about how do you capture upside? So let's say, you are working with a, a lot of companies. You're working a lot with a lot of clients. You so you were charging one client thirty thousand dollars, but your work ended up, let's say, offering them a value of one million dollars. How do you make sure you also capture the upside? Yeah, it's really tough. So when you're working at least in the SEO spaces, it's a little different. Like maybe if you're working in some sort of performance marketing, like you're doing uh, maybe you know PPC ads or something like that, or, or you're doing social media ads, things like that are a little bit easier to to essentially say, okay, you know, we literally spent this exact amount. Here's the exact amount you gained from it. And what's the percentage difference there? It's usually pretty easy to scale like performance on that basis. On SEO for us, it's a little bit different. Um, so the way we really capture upside 
is just going back and saying, hey, you know, this is clearly working. Let's just do more of what we're doing. Let's double down. Let's increase the amount we're spending per month so we can give you more time, more effort, more resources. And so for us to capture the upside is really, you know, if things are working, like let's have that notion or that, you know, that idea in the back of our mind that once this starts to work really well, we're going to spend more each month and we're going to drive more results overall. Um, so we don't do anything that's like directly tied to performance in terms of, you know, if they spent 30K this month and it generated 100K in revenue for them, you know, we don't take a cut or a commission there. We just say, hey, like, you know, stuff's working. Let's just do more. Um, and that's typically our way to, to kind of increase at least, you know, lifetime value of clients, how long they stay, things of that nature. That is very interesting. Okay. So you just make sure that you are having short contracts so that the terms are not set for the entire one year. And then you are getting paid the same 30,000, even though you're generating massive results for them. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Or, or if our contracts are longer, then we'll just say, you know, we, we always have something in there that says, you know, change orders are available in the sense that, you know, if things are going well, we can increase at a certain time based on discussions and, and keeping things flexible in that sense too, right? If they want to add new things in the mix, we don't need to do a whole new contract. We can kind of just make a quick change there and be really nimble and flexible. And I think that really plays to your advantage as an agency is is trying to be as you know least strict as you can while also allowing yourself to scale. If you get too uh, loose with like your terms, things like that, it becomes really difficult to scale predictably and hire people. You know, if you're doing a contract that's two months, it's like, you're not sure if they're going to sign on further. So hiring someone that takes a month, like, it's going to be really difficult for you to scale. So I think, you know, going with contracts that are longer, but keeping flexible terms in there uh, to where you can make some adjustments on the fly. And really, you know, like I said, if they want to increase stuff, add new things, you're able to kind of adapt there. Okay, that makes sense. So that's the middle ground where you are having this long-term engagement, but you're also changing the terms based on based on the results. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, that's that's really cool. Uh, I'm curious, like what are the biggest objections that you get like whenever you are, you are on this early stage sales calls with your clients? Yeah, it's a good question. Typically, the the main hurdle that we see is almost exclusively timing. Um, it really just depends on other factors in the business. So when we're speaking with people, is it like, you know, is this is the quarter already started, right? Have they already invested in other projects? Um, that runs into the issue of like, okay, they probably already have other vendors that are supplying services. Maybe they just agree to a new contract and like, yeah, sure, it sounds compelling to them, but like they've just went through the whole process of procurement, getting a new vendor. Um, so all those things create a lot of friction in the buying process. Um, so for us, it's almost exclusively timing. Another one will just be uh, typically around budgets, and that'll just mean that our targeting was a bit off and who we were speaking to. Um, so it's usually not anything we fault like a client or any company for. It's really something we look at internally to say, okay, you know, how did this lead get through you know, all of these checks in the sales process and not have the budget to work with us? Um, so those are probably like kind of the two main objections that we typically see. Um, and then another, you know, third one that's kind of an underlying layer is like, did we communicate to them uh, enough of the value around SEO as a whole uh, as it relates to their business, where they currently stand and like how they compare to competitors in the market, as well as like, you know, what is their overall goal and who are you speaking to are going to be really important things to, to know when you're going to a sales call. Like, um, you know, if you're speaking to, let's say you sell, again, like social media services or something you're talking to like the social manager at a company, they might not have like executive buying decisions. Um, they probably care a little more about the nitty gritty of like, how does the process work? What do you do? What's the strategy? Whereas, you know, maybe when the VP of marketing comes on to a second call and wants more buying decisions, you know, they could care less about like social metrics or engagement or anything like that. They want to know like, okay, how does the social media plan you put together? What is that 20K spend a month? Like, how does that translate into more sales qualified leads? revenue, et cetera. So I think, you know, knowing who you're talking to on a sales call is really important. And like, what's of value to them is, is often very different depending on the position they are in the company. Um, so those are typically kind of like the main things that we'll see are, are of critical importance for, for kind of answering any objections ahead of time. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And with regards to timing, how long do you think it takes for like time to result 
because definitely SEO is a long-term thing. It requires some patience. You have to keep building the site structure, the site infrastructure, the content. And then after a point, then you start seeing the, see the results. So what is the time to result that you, you, you see on average? Yeah. So typically for the clients that we work with are, are tend to be a little more established brands. Um, it'll vary a little bit though. Like we, we've worked with companies that are you know pre-product market fit and they want to really hit the ground running. I'd say it's less of what we do. Um, most of our brands are going to be, you know, they've raised probably at least three, five plus million is going to be the minimum mark there. Uh, they've got some sort of traction with, you know, awareness, branding, et cetera. Um, so for them, you know, if they have content existing on their site, maybe they're already doing a little bit of SEO. Traction is going to be obviously much faster there than if we're starting from scratch. Uh, if they don't have any content on their site in terms of, you know, stuff that's targeting specific keywords in their niche, that stuff is probably going to take three to six months to see really any traction sort start to build up. Um, around the six month mark is where, depending on how quickly we're moving and like what the budget is, of course, um, if they're you know on the higher end of budget, they give us more resources to work with. We can obviously move faster. I um, mean, you're going to see faster results that way. Um, so typically, you know, if we're moving really fast within that three month mark, we start to see a lot of that content ranking pretty decently for given keywords. Six month mark, we start to see that stuff really compound. You know, 12 month mark is where you really start to hit your stride in terms of traffic is increasing significantly month over month, you're really compounding those results in your space. Um, but yeah, it'll really depend on where they're starting from. Like I said, if it's from scratch, yeah, you definitely need a long-term mindset there of like, you're not just going to publish content and, and see uh, qualified leads come in the door, even in the next month or two. Uh, it's going to take a little while, especially if you know, you're jumping into a more competitive niche, that might even take you six to 12 months to really start seeing even those initial phases of uh, some traction there. Wow. So it definitely requires a lot of patience, especially for startups who are moving, who are trying to move so fast. Uh, for them, six yeah. months is a long time to for, yeah. for, to see the results. But I'm curious. So when you sign contracts with these clients, what do you usually sign contract for? Is it six months, 12 months, two years? Yep. Yeah. So we do six month minimum contracts. Um, typically, okay. you know, our, our average engagements are, are well over a year for our average client, um, typically going to be even longer than that. Um, and yeah, you know, if it's a, a company that's, uh, you know, very well established, maybe they just need some adjustments and fixes, uh, we can see results with them within 30 days is pretty realistic. Um, so for example, we worked with uh, monday.com and uh, mm. obviously very well established brand, uh, you know, ton of site authority, tons of content already published, but they really needed help fine tuning a lot of that, uh, adjusting some of their metrics, traffic results, things like that. And so we're able to drive really, you know, quantifiable business impact in 30 days going on that versus like, if it's a new company, yeah, we might need a contract that's extended to upwards of a year so we can really invest time and money in that to, to kind of got, kind of grow out that, you know, organic growth pipeline. Um, so, yeah, our typical contracts tend to be, you know, at least six months because if you're if you're not willing to invest six months in SEO, it might not just be the channel for you just yet. Um, it might mean you don't have product market fit. And so you, you want to spend more time working on other things versus spending money on SEO just yet. Uh, you really do need a long-term kind of investment mindset in this space. Um, and we, we do see time and time again brands that spend at least six months preferably a year, two years, really investing in this space, uh, you're just going to see massive dividends down the line. Um, so yeah, really taking a long-term approach here is key. Definitely. Very interesting. Uh, what is your best case study and what are the results that you were able to generate for them? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I'd say two prominently come to mind and it, they're both kind of good examples because they're uh, examples of completely opposite stages of growth. Um, so the first one would be a company that had just raised, uh, I think they raised maybe 3 million total uh, brand new company, brand new domain, no content on their site, no branding, no PR, anything like that. So literally talking here from scratch um, and taking them from about zero to 70,000 uh, unique monthly visits in uh, the past 16 months or so here. Um, and so this is in also a very competitive fintech niche. Um, so they're a fintech application. Uh, all their keywords are competing with brands like uh, Robinhood, you know, Fidelity, NerdWallet, The Balance, all these, you know, large publications talking about finance, which is also a really difficult niche as a whole in SEO because Kind of what i mentioned earlier 
you need a lot of trustworthiness in this space. Uh, Google really relies heavily on that since obviously it's involving money. So if you're telling people, if you're writing a finance blog and you're saying, hey, invest all your money in like this horrible investment and like it goes wrong, like that's that's really obviously not a good user experience for anyone and probably holds people liable. Um, and so, you know, the space is, is tough to compete in overall, but we've been able to outrank some large brands that have been publishing content in the space for a decade, right? And so that's probably one of our best case studies from scratch. Um, the second one would be, uh, Kind of like what I just mentioned, Monday.com, taking them from, I think they were doing maybe around somewhere in the 600, 700K uh, traffic a month mark and took them to about 1.1, 1.2 over the course of like six months or so. Um, so that's an example of like a very established brand already. And then just making adjustments, improvements, changing how they're doing the strategy um, and really catapulting some of that existing uh, traffic and results that they were already getting. Very interesting. With, I'm curious, so what is the goal that you decide at the end of like when you were starting, is it just the number of uh, unique monthly visits on the website or is it any other sort of conversions? Yeah, so this will depend again on like what stage of the company they're at, then also who you're talking to and like what their, obviously their full business goals are. Um, so as I mentioned, like it can, you know, really heavily shift based on the timeline that we're in, in terms of like world events and things like that. So if it's a company like, you know, that's in a really high growth stage, maybe all they care about right now, their main leading indicator is like, how can we get a crap ton of traffic in this niche? Like how can we be, you know, Every single search in this niche, we should be showing up one, two, three on a Google result so that our brand is there. People are recognizing us. So maybe that's one of their goals. Maybe right now with sort of the downturn talks coming in, maybe it's, okay, you know, we want to shift our strategy from the most traffic to the most qualified traffic where, you know, who cares if it's 10,000 a month or 500 people a month, as long as those folks are coming in, they're, you know, going through our funnel, they're converting on something, we're retaining that traffic. Um, so it really will be on a case-by-case -case basis, but typically what we work within is going to be a mix of getting you really high quality relevant traffic, and then also how can we zone in on like, here's our best industry, our best use case, what are some maybe untapped sections in there where, you know, our efforts are going to drive really high sales qualified leads. Um, that tends to be one of kind of our, our key performance indicators is like, what is the actual attributable revenue that we're generating here in terms of, you know, enterprise sales calls, or maybe it's specific traffic to a specific landing page where they're converting on maybe something a little softer, like a lead magnet or a newsletter or something like that, where we're kind of retaining some of that traffic overall. Very interesting. So Jeremy, this was a really deep insight, all your deep insights into building the SEO agency. Super cool. Let's talk about now or acquiring that SaaS startup that you did. Uh, let's talk about the entire story. Yeah, absolutely. So we uh, acquired Wordable.io in, uh, I think, late 2020 it was. Um, so it's a tool that basically exports uh, Google Docs to your content management system. Um, so let's say you're, you know, writing a bunch of content for your site um, and you want to publish that. Um, you're doing, you know, all this with an SEO content marketing goal in mind. Um, essentially, you know, you're going to be writing in Google Docs for the most part. The majority of people will write in there because it's pretty easy to collaborate on um, and share around. And so you're going to write your content in there and then use Wordable essentially to click, you know, one, two, three buttons and export that instantly so that you're saving yourself a ton of time each week on formatting, re-uploading, uh, you know, compressing images, doing all those, you know, really minute details that you have to do when publishing new content um, that end up taking a ton of your time in a week. So it's really meant to save you a bunch of time when you're publishing content at scale. Um, so, for example, companies like Ahrefs use that, Kinsta, Stanford EDO. So anyone publishing a large amount of content at a given time uh, can really benefit from that. And so we were actually customers of the tool before we bought it because we were doing the same thing, right? We were publishing so much content at scale that, you know, we were having to hire people to actually just do this full time. We're like, they were literally uh, spending all day just uploading, reformatting, publishing content in the CMS, or we were pulling in people like from the content team whose time is worth like way more than, than sitting there uploading a piece of content into the CMS, like their business value there is just way off. And so 
we uh, we saw this go onto the market and we just said, hey, like this is a perfect way to essentially vertically integrate other steps of the business for us. Um, and it's also a good access to existing clientele, right? It's kind of like one of the other main reasons we saw this as a really good opportunity is that uh, there's existing brands that are using this that also need our SEO, digital PR services. It's basically a good upsell from there where we have you know exclusive contacts to a lot of these companies that if you were just to send them a cold email and say, hey, spend 30K a month with us, you know, you're not going to hear back from them. Uh, if, you, if they're already in your tool, in your system, you're providing good customer service, good value. Uh, there's just you know so much room there for upsells, cross-sells, things of that nature. So that was kind of what led us to, to decide to purchase it in 2020. Very interesting. I'm actually curious, like how do you upsell someone who is using this particular tool, Wordable, to invest with you or spend with you on SEO? What How does the pipeline look like? Yeah, absolutely. So that's like I said, that's kind of like one of the main focuses we saw on this is that, you know, even one or two clients uh, secured for six to 12 months would more than pay for the actual acquisition. Um, so the acquisition mm -hmm. as a whole was like on the low six figure end to give everyone listening a ballpark. Um, so, you know, our typical contract values are, are pretty decently high. Um, and so, you know, one single client converted from that is like essentially buying a free SaaS tool um, that also produces monthly recurring revenue, has its own benefits uh, as a whole um, in terms of a, you know, all around business perspective. So for us, um, that looks like essentially just uh, seeing who's a power user in here, like who is who's using the tool a lot, who's getting the most value, how can we deliver better customer service, and then connecting with them on a one-to-one -one basis of like, okay, you know, you're doing this and giving them essentially free consulting, right, of like, here's some opportunities that you can take advantage of, getting our foot in the door more there where, you know, we're becoming a little bit of a trusted advisor in that sense, so that when the time is right, we can go to them and say, hey, like, you know, we see some opportunities right here. No idea if like this is on your radar or if you're looking to scale this up or what your current budget is for stuff like this. If you have an in-house team, we just kind of float those ideas out there. Um, and it ends up getting a lot of interest because like I said, we have displayed and communicated that value before to, to where, you know, we're helping them for free kind of on our dime, even though, you know, they're, they're a paid user, but obviously plans of SaaS tools are not the same as spending 10, 20, 30K a month for uh, services overall. So that's typically kind of the, the methodology that we use there when, when trying to engage in an upsell. That's a great strategy. Uh, after buying Wordable, are you now thinking about every single inefficiency as buying another SaaS tool? Yeah, I mean, there, there's there's huge opportunities in this space for us when, when we're looking at other kind of vertical or horizontal integrations in terms of SaaS buying. Um, I think there's, you know, the, the SEO tool space as a whole is pretty large, so there's a lot of opportunity out there. Um, and companies tend to use more than one at a time. Um, so even if you're not acquiring something like in Ahrefs, obviously, which is, you know, a beast of its own, where like, obviously, we can't afford to acquire Ahrefs, I think, you know, they do, I'm not sure exactly their metrics, since they're private, but they just spent uh, whatever 60 million investing in uh, their own search engine. So that gives you a bit of an idea of, of how big of a scale that company is. Um, but there's other smaller tools out there where a lot of good companies are using them. Uh, we're seeing some acquisitions happen in the space for smaller tools as well. Um, so yeah, we're constantly looking for stuff on the market too, maybe not even directly in the SEO space, but you know, in content marketing, marketing as a whole is, is another vertical that we look at. Um, and we look at how we can create uh, what we reference as like tripwires or like stages in the funnel um, where we can onboard folks from larger companies at a cheaper price um, and then build that relationship over time, see if our services are a good fit for them, if we can genuinely help them, then it's just a really easy next step for us to kind of build and foster that relationship. Um, so for example, another one would be like uh, the course that I have on copywriting that I did for you know, many years as, as a profession um, for clients and, and don't do any copywriting anymore. So, you know, figured, hey, let me just throw all these resources that I have from five, six, seven years of doing this stuff. Let me just put it into a guide, into a guided course and like have people jump in there and, and make value out of it. But it's also a great way to connect with folks at, at large companies that have taken it and say, hey, like you're doing copywriting for your site. I see you have content here. Like, you know, let me know if it makes sense to chat anytime about scaling some of this up.
Um, so like I mentioned, you know, just looking at any opportunities in the space to where we don't have to go super cold in the sense that we're just sending, you know, annoying email blasts to everyone. Um, but we're going and we're providing value in some way that's a little bit of an easier step to take at first um, and really build that trust of like, okay, this person delivers value consistently. They live up to their promises on like this course, the software tool. Now let's see if we can experiment with something that's a little more high level. Right. What do you think about hiring your own software engineering team and getting them to build everything? Yeah. So we've, uh, you know, we've looked into doing this. We've, we've done a little bit of this to kind of scale out the de development of Wordable itself. Um, so neither myself nor my co-founder are technical oriented in terms of we don't know how to do any sort of you know coding at scale or building software, you know, doing software engineering, scaling apps. Um, we're really more on the operational side, marketing side, scaling businesses side of things. So we've gone through the process of like, you know, working with freelance developers, outsourcing to agencies, uh, the up and downs that come with that of like not knowing a lot of the technical background makes it really difficult to scale a lot of that because, you know, A, you have someone that's working on a project basis versus an equity basis where like they're motivated to, to grow this versus they're just trying to bill you as much time for, for the work as possible. So there's some things that you have to kind of dance around, so to speak, in, in that space. Um, but we do have a couple of developers on staff who we, uh, you know, we, we test out new ideas, like I said, for the Wordable side of things, but then we also come up with new ideas where we might see a cool tool in market. Maybe we'll build something similar, but on a smaller scale that we can offer to existing folks in our space and in our network of like, hey, here's a cool tool. Use it for free for now. If you like it, let us know. If there's any feedback, we can kind of make changes there. So we've built stuff on a smaller scale, but really we're looking mostly to, to see, is there anything with at least some traction where like we can extend our reach and our audience and our network? is really the main value driver for us. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be incredibly profitable or drive a ton of revenue every month. You know, that's stuff that we can improve on down the line. But you know, if, if there's a tool that has 10 customers that are right in our niche, ideal customer profiles for our agencies, uh, you know, buying that just uh, completely makes sense for us as an acquisition because even, like I said, even a single sale there uh, more than pays for the acquisition as a whole um, and really gives us a ton of room there to work with to improve that app uh, moving forward to make it generate more revenue um, and really allows us to essentially acquire companies at scale that are, you know, they've already got some traction. They've gone through that development phase uh, without essentially paying really any money out of pocket in the long term. Um, so it's kind of a strategy that we're, we're looking to invest more in, at least for the time being. Yeah, it's, it definitely works really well where uh, now you have this, this one agency, this one business that is generating revenue and you're leveraging that to acquire businesses that are more self-serve. They are, they require less of your time. Uh, very interesting. Now I'm curious about your Twitter strategy. So you mentioned about using Twitter as a lead generation, infinite networking. What is your thought process over there? How do you approach Twitter? Yeah, absolutely. Twitter has been a really good lead generation platform for our businesses. Um, it's, and as I mentioned, really good for networking just all around. Um, I think one strategy that I've taken a little differently on Twitter is not just necessarily speaking directly to the exact niche stuff that I'm doing. Um, I think we can get caught in the trap of like building in public, but to people that aren't our own audience um, or aren't the ideal customer profile, right? So for example, if I'm spending all day tweeting about SEO strategy, the people consuming that are probably not people that are looking to buy from me. They're probably pretty experienced, high leverage folks in SEO that maybe they run their own agency, their own consultancy, maybe they do work in a different niche, but like still are looking to adapt some strategies. Uh, they're probably not folks that are looking to buy, right? My, you know, the customer profile of someone that buys for us is probably more around like a VP of marketing uh, at a company who's looking to scale organic as a channel to, to again, drive sales, qualified leads, revenue, business impact versus like an SEO who, who is doing that overall, but you know, kind of their more niche and siloed goals are, how do I build the authority traffic of a site? Um, and so the strategy I've taken on Twitter is to kind of avoid speaking directly to other SEOs in that sense, where like my content's just gonna reach them, they're just gonna adapt some strategy and use that versus like, let's go a little broader in marketing as a whole. How does content, copywriting, SEO, PR, how does that all funnel into a grand marketing strategy? 
um, that you know is going to drive business impact in the long run. Um, and that's really helping me reach more decision makers versus like the day-to-day executors on a project. Um, so I think that's really one key thing to note when you're uh, posting a lot of social content is like, who are you speaking to? Uh, making sure that like you're speaking to at least, you know, close to a decision maker versus like the day-to-day operator. Um, so there's some, you know, differences in how you communicate things, uh, how broad you go, what kind of value propositions you propose in there is going to be different. Kind of like what I mentioned earlier on the sales call, like your language has to be very different depending on who you're talking to. Like if you're talking to uh, the content manager, they want to know, you know, the word count of an article, the keywords you're targeting, things like that. If you're talking to a VP, mm-hmm. you know, they, they couldn't care less uh, about word count, right? They just want to know, is this article going to reach our ideal customers? And are they going to come to us and say, hey, that's valuable. I'm, I'm ready to buy from you. Um, so that's been our strategy on Twitter so far. And, and uh, yeah, you can just build a huge network on it, um, meet a lot of cool people at different companies. Even if you're not directly selling on there, you just build so many referral networks where like, okay, now I know whatever, 50, 100 people who work at these software companies, if they need stuff, they'll probably come to me and ask and say, hey, can you guys do X, Y, Z? Um, or maybe they'll just refer us to their own network. So you start to get that infinite leverage, so to speak, where like, even if you're just connecting with 10 people and it seems small um, and they don't need your services directly yet, they also probably know 10 other people themselves, right, that are in the same niche that might need it. Um, so you really create a network that just expands uh, exponentially. Definitely. I believe that I read in this Slack's founder letter, the CEO of Slack wrote a letter where he was he basically mentioned that we do not sell saddles, we sell horse riding. So do not share or do not basically write about your specific thing, but write about overall uh, content marketing that grabs people's attention and then use your product as an or upsell it basically. So that was super interesting. But I'm curious, like why Twitter not LinkedIn? Yeah, so I, you know, it's a good question. I think LinkedIn is, is definitely underrated. I think LinkedIn gets a little bit of a bad rap, especially from the Twitter crowd of like, it's too salesy, too spammy. I think it does have issues of like, there's definitely spam on LinkedIn. Of like you go there, your inbox is like filled with like super crappy pitches that are just not relevant to you. Um, but I think that's also works to your advantage if you do LinkedIn correctly, right? Like you can stand out really easily in that sense where a single good connection request or a message to someone that's relevant that isn't like pushing for, hey, do you have an hour to meet with me even though we've never connected with each other before? Uh, there's a lot of room there to stand out on LinkedIn. I just focused on Twitter overall because I think the ability to grow a network there is a little bit faster and a little bit easier overall than LinkedIn just based on the platform, the algorithm, how kind of the social sharing network works. Um, people can just really easily click retweet and again, your tweet is sent, uh, you know, to their entire audience. Essentially, your organic reach on Twitter is is pretty uh, amazing. It's similar to TikTok in that sense, where like, you know, you post one thing. If someone engages and shares that, um, you get bumped up in the algorithm. You're shown on like these trending topics where people aren't even following you, but you're in their feed. Uh, there's just so many ways to kind of compound your reach on Twitter. Versus LinkedIn has some of that, where like, you know, they'll have hashtags, some topics, uh, but reshares are not as easy. Um, I've just found that the compounding efforts of like a single share on Twitter are, you know, just much larger than LinkedIn. Um, but I think both have have their place in your strategy. I think LinkedIn, you can be a little more salesy in that like, you know, you might want to share more case studies there. You might want to share more directly related to your business. Whereas Twitter, you know, you might want to go for a broader angle of, of how do I build just these connections at scale with like really valuable people to where when they're ready to buy, they know and that, you know, I'm top of mind, right? They're going to say this quarter we need SEO. Oh, okay. Who do I know who does this? Well, probably this guy who's been you know, posting on my feed constantly, we've chatted before, like, looks pretty legit, let's, you know, talk to them and see if we can make something happen. So a little bit of a different approach, but I think both, you know, have have really good value. That makes sense, especially for Twitter, you mentioned the retweet button, that is, that is it, that is the main feature that yeah. basically helps you with organic growth. That makes sense. Okay. Uh, if we talk about more tactical stuff, what are you focused on in terms of your content or Twitter content? Yeah, my Twitter content takes a few different approaches. Um, so kind of mainly my content in the past has been 
a little more general around marketing, business, uh, copywriting too thrown in there is definitely a main portion of stuff that I tweet about. Um, and my mm. content strategy there overall um, tends to be really anything that I can tie back to uh, directly back to content as a whole. So that could be copywriting, that could be SEO strategy, uh, it could be video, it could be marketing, it could be social. Um, but really the goal there for me is like anything that I have direct experience on that I can like, that doesn't take me extra time in my day, right? Like I think one issue you can run into with content creation on social platforms is like, if you haven't actually done a lot of the stuff in your space that you're talking about, you have to spend so much time researching stuff, like so much time dissecting case studies and writing threads about them versus if you've actually done a lot of this stuff in the past, you can probably just go back into your, whether it's, you know, stuff that's just living in your brain, maybe it's notes, maybe it's old docs that you have. You can repurpose that stuff, you know, within a couple of hours to, to have months worth of content versus like, okay, you know, today I need to research 10 new things that I personally haven't done before, but I think are interesting and then share those is like the effort that takes is much, much higher. Um, it also doesn't position yourself as much as an expert in the space as if you're just sharing, hey, here's, you know, 10 copywriting tips that I've implemented for clients and like, you know, feel free to steal these and use these on your own um, is much easier to create for me. So anything that uh, I've done in the past or that I'm currently doing that I'm seeing is working um, is, is you know, kind of the, the main bread and butter of my strategy, at least on the Twitter front. And then for LinkedIn is usually more business driven. So like, you know, here's the strategy we did for a specific client. Here's the results um, and, and really making that more like, you know, in the present focus versus here's all the stuff that I have done. This is super helpful for me, especially because yes, being a product manager, when I got into product, I was like, all right, so let's become better at it. And that's when I started writing. And that's just a good feedback where the work you do that helps you write better, the write, the writing and researching you do that helps you become better at your job. Yeah. So super helpful in general, the entire content. But yeah, let's talk about copywriting now. You mentioned that writing good marketing copy requires unlearning everything school taught you about writing. So let's dissect that. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, when at, at least when I was back in school, I don't know if it's changed in the past however many years it's been at this point, maybe courses now are a little geared towards online writing versus like standardized writing that it was a little further back. Um, but, you know, a lot of the stuff we were taught around writing is like, okay, here's a topic, like, give me a five paragraph essay about why this is important. Now it's like, here's a topic, tell me in one to two sentences max, like why I should continue reading, right? Like, what is it that's important here that I need to know about? And that's a huge mindset shift that you have to make when you're talking about writing content for the internet versus like here I'm writing kind of a dry study on a topic that like a teacher is going to review. Um, it's just so wildly different in, in real world applications, especially um, when you're talking about, you know, more broad marketing startup entrepreneurship style spaces. Obviously there's a little bit of nuance there. Like if you're writing stuff as like a lawyer, yeah, your stuff's going to be pretty dry. You don't want to like start every sentence with and and because and but, um, but you know, if you're in marketing startups, et cetera, uh, you do need to get to the point very quickly because attention spans have dropped off significantly over the past couple of years. Um, you can see this right now with TikTok, right? It's, it's why TikTok is getting super popular is like you can consume so much interesting content with just a couple swipes. You've watched 20 videos versus like sitting down to watch a 40, 50 minute video. It's far less common. Um, so I think you see a lot of the same principles apply to writing now where uh, what you're taught in school is how can I expand further on this topic? How can I cite you know 50 resources and write 50 pages on this one bullet point? Versus now it's like, okay, you know, you can still write a long form piece of content, but like, how do I make each line engaging to where someone's reading this and they can't help but continue reading? And a lot of that is how do I say things um, as simple as possible that someone can digest? And also how do I zero in on a specific niche to where this is not just like, you know, okay, go post on social media, but this is like, here's what to do if you're a SaaS company with $5 million raised and this social profile, here's the exact stuff you need. So really getting specific and uh, getting to the point is like, Kind of just the main overarching thing uh, obviously there's a lot of tactics and stuff you can do within that uh, but that's kind of the main mindset shift that you need to make from like that dry boring school type of writing to uh stuff that's going to grab attention on the internet 
Right. I remember looking at Apple's marketing copy and it's just really good, especially for MacBook uh, Air, where it just says light period years ahead. That's so cool. Like yeah. it just shows the total uh, value proposition of the product. But if you want to dive into a little bit of tactical stuff, can you pinpoint like one or two tactical stuff that goes into making your writing not boring? Yeah, absolutely. I'd say really looking at like, what are your main value propositions within your product or service? So this will depend, like if you're just writing stuff on social media, um, it'll be a little different than if you're writing copy for like a landing page or anything like that, or you're doing a more sales focused approach. If we're talking like, you know, just generalized social media copywriting, maybe it's a general, you know, long form piece of content on your site. Uh, really what you want to do is make a really nice hook is like going to be one of the main things that you can really leverage there. Um, so that's typically one to two sentences max of like, why should someone keep reading this? What's of interest to them? Is it you know, maybe a gap in their existing knowledge that's going to compel them to click. Um, if you're writing a headline, that's super important. Of like, you know, a good example I like to use is like a subject line that uh, I saw in an email that was really strong and powerful using that kind of curiosity gap is, is what it's referenced as. Uh, it was something along the lines of like, you know, breaking crypto advice, dot, 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 from someone who lived, you know, 80 years ago or something. So like your knowledge is like instantly peaked right, or your curiosity is instantly peaked right there. You're like, okay, you know, obviously crypto hasn't been around for that long someone's advice on that. So what's what knowledge am I missing here? What's the curiosity gap uh, that compels someone to click? So I think, you know, using small tricks like that, where, uh, you know, you're getting attention, you're grabbing it quickly, and you're about to deliver value that, you know, expands on that is really key from just a social media copywriting standpoint. Um, then when you're looking at more, you know, sales focused stuff like a landing page, or you're looking to sell a product or something like that, really, you know, you never want to start writing from scratch. It's usually the biggest trap that you can fall into is like staring at a blank page and just saying, okay, let me type something that sounds compelling. It's like, it's probably not exactly what's valuable to them. Uh, what you might think the value is, is often misaligned with what the actual end value for a user is. Um, so obviously the best way around that is speaking to customers if you have any existing ones and just asking them questions around why they chose you, what's compelling about you versus competitors, what, you know, what problems are they solving? Um, if you don't have customers, you can kind of go and look at existing products out there. Um, you know, whether you're selling an e-com product, okay, go to Amazon, look at their reviews of like, three, four stars, see what people like, obviously, and see, you know, what compels them to buy, but also see what they don't like, what you can improve on and use in your copywriting as leverage, um, you know, seeing what's existing out there. If you're in software, go to g2.com, see what the reviews are, things like that. You know, there's a lot of stuff to, to get you started to where you don't have to stare at a blank page and like hope that the words come to you or sound good. Um, you can kind of see, you know, what's already out there, what people are complaining about and use that to your advantage. Definitely. All right, Jeremy, this was really good. We talked about usurp, uh, buying Wordable. We talked about copywriting. We talked about Twitter. Super cool. Uh, where can people find you? Yeah, you can uh, connect with me on Twitter. Um, if you just type in my full name there, it should come up. It's uh, at J Moser with two R's at the end. Um, and then you can find us at usurp.io for anything, you know, SEO or digital PR related. All right, perfect. Thank you so much for coming on. This was really good. Yeah, thanks for having me, man.